Welcome to None Dare Call It Ordinary, the podcast that digs into the unusual, unorthodox, and downright unsettling beliefs found at the depths of the internet and the heights of paranoia. I'm your host, Dylan, and with me is the Wild Forest and the Western and welcome back, Forrest. I'm back. Yeah, Forrest is uh, <laughs> Forrest is finally back Contained. with us. He uh, was able to take a break from his hustling <laughs> to grace us with his auditory presence. And we are so grateful. How have you been, Forrest? How have well, you been? Well, you know, better than before. I was dealing with the cumulative effects that being a starving artist for so long will bring to you in a financial sense. And I'm getting uh, getting a better grip on my finances now. So... I have a little more time for this kind of stuff. Soon you'll be a blisspreneur. Yeah, you could with, be a, with a blisspreneur is what bliss-preneur. you really need to do. You need to go to Aphrodite University and oh. uh, get some of that uh, blissness going. Become a high-heeled priestess. I also kind of want to tell everyone, again, if you go, we now have a website. Once again, if you go to nundarecallitordinary.com, you'll find links to our Patreon account our merch store, and our Discord server. And we have a special incentive to come to our Discord server, and that is I rescued two kittens last night. This is a real story, and I have been pumping that Discord server (laughs) with the whole story and tons of pictures. So if you need pictures of two adorable like six-week-old kittens. They are pretty cute. Come down to the Discord server. You will get more than you ever thought <laughs> you could need. And so that is an extra incentive to check out our Discord server, which you can find at nundarecallitordinary.com. All right. So what is it we're talking about today, Dylan? Well, today we begin a series that really was on the agenda from day one, and that is... The Sovereign Citizens Movement. This is something that we've thought about for a long time. We've gotten a lot of requests to do this, and we now feel we're in the position to do it right and to get it done. And specifically today, we're going to start with the Posse Commentatus and the founder, William Potter Gale. Right off the bat, we want to have a disclaimer because... We should know that the sovereign citizen movement and ideas, they're connected to all sorts of different aspects of the fringe right. There's it's a multicolored rainbow. (laughs) They they are a rainbow coalition after all. Yeah, a rainbow coalition of lunatics and dirtbags. And we can't cover all of them. Uh, We just can't do it in one series. We're definitely going to get to them at later points in the podcast, in the you know history of this podcast. But right now, you know, we just want to hone in on some of the specific aspects. We want to save some of the Christian identity stuff uh, and the kind of the other sources of racism and anti-Semitism. It comes up a lot, uh, especially in this episode, but we don't want to do a deep dive on that right now because that deserves its own series, frankly. So we want the focus to be on the idiosyncratic legal doctrines of sovereign citizens rather than their bizarre religious and racial beliefs for the most part. Oh, but don't worry if you're, you know, disappointed by hearing that. Oh, I I wanted some more anti-Semitism. Like, don't worry. You're still going to get it. Yes. It's just not in, it's just not in the concentrated dose that you would get from the deep dive. Yeah, exactly. That's kind of, that should, what really I should have said this at the end, 
because that's that tells you everything you need to know about just how anti-Semitic all this is, is that it comes up a whole lot on this episode. And yet it's still not the focus. That's what's kind of amazing. <laughs> and the reason we're starting this series with the Posse Commentatus and its founder, William Potter Gale, is because it's due to the recommendation of Dr. Mark Pitcavage, who's been studying the radical right for a long time. He's a senior research fellow at the Anti-Defamation League, and he says this. The common law courts and sovereign citizens are the direct ideological descendants of the posse commentatus. Any attempt to understand the common law courts must start with this group. And so we decided, hey, let's start there. And because William Potter Gale was the founder of the posse commentatus, we really wanted to do a deep dive into who he was and the amount of malarkey and insanity that was the source of all of his really bad ideas. Would you say the posse commentators were clowns? Um, I don't. I think. Yeah, I think I would call them clowns. Would you say they were insane? Hmm. You know what? I think at least on a broad definition of insanity, I, I certainly think so. Oh, cool. So the insane clown posse commentators. Yes, <laughs> exactly. That's exactly <laughs> right. <laughs> So our primary source on William Potter Gale himself and his formation of the Posse Commentatus is Daniel Levitas's book, The Terrorist Next Door, The Militia Movement, and The Radical Right. And this book is incredible. And there is just so much stuff that I would love to talk about all of it, but I am just saving the juiciest bits so we can get an idea of who William Potter Gale is and where he got all his ideas from. And the surprises come right off the bat, because despite being a virulent anti-Semite, I mean, choice, pure anti-Semite, it turns out Gale's entire family on his father's side are Jewish. <laughs> in fact, they were Russian emigres fleeing pogroms in their home uh, country in the late 19th century. I, I, like, so, I like how you had <laughs> to preface this whole podcast with you know we just don't have time for all the anti-semitism and yet you still have to begin it this way that just shows how intertwined it is it's, it is inseparable it's dripping it's dripping i mean i think if i squeezed my kindle hard enough the protocols of the elders of zion would come out i think that <laughs> is the level of anti-semitism we're dealing with here it's like the research I did for this episode, like is also leading to like 13 other episodes on various right wing anti-Semites. Oh, it's, it's an incredible <laughs> book. So who were these relatives? Who were these Jewish relatives who kind of fled Russia to encounter more anti-Semitism in the United States? Well, they were uh, William Gale's great aunt and uncle, Marcus and Rosa, and they emigrated first, followed by Gale's father, Charles. Marcus and Rosa initially settled in North Dakota, where they faced a kind of contradictory anti-Semitism, a kind of dialethic <laughs> anti-Semitism. Because on the one hand, you have uh, this person who is identified as a amateur historian described them and their fellow immigrants this way. These refugees were not the higher type Jew, but were a poor, oppressed, ignorant peasant class, uneducated, inexperienced, and utterly lost in their new freedom from serfdom. Without an overlord or master in charge, they did not seem to be able to care for themselves. They were an incompetent lot to transplant in a new country with its strange tongue and customs and were pitiable 
Indeed. Wait, I, I thought Stefan Molyneux says, no, they have high IQs. What is this? This is terrible. <laughs> well, hold on, hold on. Oh. See, this is the dialethic part coming. Oh. Because if we, if we look at the Bismarck Tribune, who was covering the same group of North Dakotan Jewish immigrants, they give a much different story in this passage. Russia loses $200 million by the exodus of the Jews whom she has oppressed beyond endurance. See? So apparently... They were rich as fuck. Yep. See, so it's okay. So eight years after Marcus and Rosa moved to North Dakota, they moved on to Portland, Oregon. And then five years after that is when Charles immigrated to the U.S. and moved to North Dakota, thinking his uncle and aunt still lived there and he could just work with them. But they didn't have smartphones back then. So, you know, Marcus and Rosa long gone. Charles had no intention of just becoming a farmer. Instead, he joined the U.S. military. And this was actually possible. This was something immigrants could do in the United States at the time if they filed the right paperwork, declaring that they wanted to eventually become U.S. citizens. But, you know, Charles, he couldn't bother. He didn't want to do that. So he just lied and said he was older than he was and that he was from North Dakota. This may be the only time in recorded history someone has lied about being in North Dakota. Yeah, I think you might be right. I can't imagine any other scenario where that would make any sense. God, what a slam We against North Dakota. We just lost all our North Dakota listeners. Thanks, Brent. Jesus Christ. All one of them. <sighs> the time between Charles's fake enlistment in 1898 and discharge in 1903 is crucial to understanding Charles's relationship to his Jewish background and William Potter Gale's capacity to play along with Charles's own reinvention. <laughs> when Charles enlisted, he cited his parents' nationality as Hebrew, which was common for immigrants fleeing anti-Semitic countries like Charles, who identified more with his Jewishness, at the time at least, than with Russia. But in paperwork from 1903, his family's nationality became English. As Levitas notes... He was ready to transform himself into a full-blooded Anglo-Saxon native-born American as well as an apostate. <laughs> He's going to transform himself into an Anglo-Saxon the way Richard Hart's hex, you can transform Ethereum yes, into it. It's exactly the same. It's <laughs> the same kind of both, transformation. In both scenarios, they are transformations. And there's a fun little fact here between the kind of the 1898 paperwork and the 1903 paperwork is that a new detail was added to Charles's medical records in 1903 that was missing from his initial records, his circumcision. So when he decided to declare himself an Anglo-Saxon, that's also when it became official that he was circumcised. Counterintuitive. Yeah, counterintuitive. Thankfully, no one was paying attention. And this transformation was pretty common. It's understandable given Jews faced anti-Semitism from two fronts, Christians and nationalists who thought that Jews were too clannish to become fully assimilated. Levitas says that given these factors, Charles's transformation was not at all unique, saying, quote, besieged by such hostility, many Jews were eager to prove themselves to be upstanding citizens and to demonstrate their loyalty to America. But Charles also had a personal reason for dropping any Jewish self-identification. It was a way to distance himself from his abusive father and become his own person. In other words, if Charles's father wasn't such a huge asshole, the entirety of the radical right would be completely different. <laughs> so just think about that for half a second, because that is incredible. And it just shows how incredibly ridiculous the 
anti-immigrant racism of America was, especially during these times, because so many people that were Jews or Japanese or whatever, wherever they came from, they all tried their best to assimilate. Yeah. They actually put in all the effort they could to assimilate, but still like doesn't doesn't work. Not good enough. <laughs> Well, scum. you know why they assimilated? It was the tough love of all those nativists. Ah, so maybe we should be grateful. <laughs> I see. That is definitely true. Dylan's new revisionist history book out next month. In 1905, Charles took another step away from Judaism by marrying Mary Agnes Potter, who was 100% Anglo-Saxon and also one of the first telephone operators in Minnesota. So that's pretty cool. And also totally irrelevant to the podcast, but I thought it was fun. Fair enough. 12 years later, William Potter Gale himself was born in 1917, which is deliciously ironic. Everybody knows. Yeah. 1917, the uh, the Jews, excuse me, the communists uh, took over Russia and the rest is history. Gale was baptized in the Episcopal Church, but had trouble understanding what the baptism was all about, allegedly telling the preacher that his face wasn't dirty when water was dumped on his head. Yeah, that's why you always go with the Baptist style. Baptism over the Episcopal nonsense. So you full immersion in water to get fully clean. Yeah, because then then he would understand. Yeah, then he would definitely understand why this was happening. Exactly. But the family wouldn't stay Episcopalians for long since Mary was convinced they were just lousy with communists. Every Episcopalian apparently was a communist except for them. The real problem that they were facing. (laughs) Gail joined the National Guard Reserves in 1933 at the age of 15 and enlisted in the army two years later, stationed at Fort MacArthur. He was honorably discharged in 1937 and married his wife, Josephine Catherine Dvornich, three days later. Their first child, Geraldine, was born in 1939. And while Bill would eventually return to the National Guard Reserves, he first tried his hand managing a smelting and refining company, but his real passion was Bill's Cafe and Cocktail Lounge. And he even got his mother to do all the cooking and indulge in his pastime of staying up late and sleeping in. Wow. Again, imagine if this business had just succeeded (laughs) and and this man could be famous for having a great, you know, a a franchise of cafe and cocktail lounges. I mean, a lot better than what's going to happen. I'm just going to say that right off the top. Sadly, though, the cafe and cocktail life was not in the cards for Bill Gale and he re-enlisted in the National Guard Reserves in January of 1941 and soon after the Army, eventually becoming a first lieutenant. At first, his superiors were enamored with Bill, even if they did know that he was, quote, inclined to argue. And uh, that doesn't get better. That doesn't get any better. A repeat event first happens in 1943 when Bill Gale was shipped off to Australia And two weeks later, he started complaining of jaundice, of liver problems, and he was hospitalized. And this happens again and again and again. (laughs) And while they did find he was infested with hookworm, they found no evidence of liver trouble. For whatever reason, he still spent three months in the hospital. I don't know how bad hookworm could possibly be, but I didn't think it was three months in the hospital bad. After finally being released... He soon after complained about jaundice yet again. The doctors began thinking maybe something else was going on, saying the following. Though we may have had liver problems, army doctors were more concerned by the growing anxiety they observed in the young officer, and they diagnosed Gail's condition not as hepatitis, but as psychoneurosis, manifested by abdominal pain 
indigestion, weakness, insomnia, and fatigue. I was about to say, so, I, I think that there's some information now, if I'm not mistaken, that hookworm can cause certain mental issues. <laughs> so oh, shit. It's, this might be it. Huh. You know? Oh, my God. Or he was just nuts. Or that. <laughs> also, I got to say, Psychoneurosis is pretty cool. Yeah, That's a good is. band name. That's a way cooler... Oh, I'm mentally ill. No, I'm psychoneurotic. That's way cooler sounding. <laughs> and because of this second complaint about liver problems, Bill was flown back to the U.S. in April of 1944, but was cleared by a medical board and sent back the next month in May. And this begins a period in Bill Gale's life where he makes a whole bunch of claims about his service. If you take his word for it, he planned, in his own words, every operation in the Philippines. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> trained Filipino guerrilla units and, quote, had a ball killing 300 Japanese troops with his Filipino unit. <laughs> Sounds like a real secret man to me. Oh, I was just about to say. <laughs> I'm, I'm really glad you brought up our friend Frank Dukes, the secret man, because like Frank Dukes, a quick look at, his mil at Bill Gale's military record shows that none of this is true. Oh. He was awarded seven citations and awards during his time in the army. Six of those seven were for merely just being in the army in the Pacific theater during world war two, just being in it, getting the award. None of them, none of them were for facing enemy fire. How dare you steal this man's valor? Yeah. He, <laughs> it's disgusting. It is definitely a stolen valor case and probably a whole episode could be made just about that. Again, I am skimming this part. I want to be very clear. <laughs> I am skimming the stolen valor portion of this book. And frankly, what he should have received was an award for complaining of jaundice because he <laughs> did so a third time in August 1945 and was shipped back to the U.S. Bill would spin this too, saying he was shipped back with his coffin because he was so sick. <laughs> and I had to read this a couple times because I would get if he said, like, I was shipped back in my coffin, you know, because they thought I would just be dead on the way and might as well already have me in the coffin. But he specifically says with he was shipped back with his coffin. <laughs> so did he already have a coffin made? Is that well, how the army? Works? I know what it is. <laughs> I know what it is. He he's Nosferatu. If you if you if you've ever seen Nosferatu, he carries his coffin. Oh, so, so it's just as bad. That's what it is. It's just as bad. That's what it so is. So it's not nearly as impressive then, because he always gets shipped with his coffin. <laughs> he just tried to make it sound way cooler than it was. And now you know, as as you can imagine, as if hanging out with his own coffin wasn't stressful <laughs> enough, his wife Josephine had given birth to their second child, Kathleen, and Bill Jr. would be born. In October 1946, that same month, Bill and his family left the coffin behind and moved to Japan, where Bill spent two years supervising U.S. forces there. He was also closely supervising his liver because in January 1948, he spent his fourth time in the hospital claiming hepatitis. For a fourth time, liver tests came back negative. By August 1948, Bill and his family were back in Los Angeles at Fort MacArthur. They had a bit of a hard time adjusting because when Bill Gale was stationed in Japan, he had a prestigious post, but now he was just a regular reservist at Fort MacArthur. And I don't mean to insult any reservists at Fort MacArthur. That was kind of his perspective on the thing. He was like, oh, this is beneath me. And so like any responsible adult, he just didn't report for duty. <laughs> Instead, he went golfing 
or he trained boxers in his own gym, i.e. his garage. (laughs) And Bill's military superiors were not very happy, saying this. Bill has considerable initiative in projects in which he is interested, like boxing, but he will not follow through on details and requires close supervision. And I got to say, I think he really needed close supervision from all of society. I really yeah, think yeah. everyone should have came together to keep a close eye <laughs> on I, Bill Gates. I do like how a man who went to Japan where he spent two years supervising U.S. forces himself requires close supervision. That's yeah. a very scary thought. <laughs> who very... supervises the supervisors? <laughs> the supervisors, yeah. <laughs> Deeply disturbing. Deeply. But, I mean, you know, all this is actually moot, frankly, because in January of 1949, guess what? What? Bill was in the hospital again, adding fatigue to his usual liver complaints. <laughs> and you can imagine what the test results were negative with a side of deep seated psychoneurosis. So now it's getting deeper. It's getting deeper in there. And to make matters worse, Bill's father, Charles, died on April 25th, 1949. And this is what Levitas had to say about the importance of this death. And with this quote, uh, they mentioned the Grabifker family, and that was the original name of the Gale family before they immigrated to the United States. Ah. Quote, when Charles died, he took with him details of the Grabifker's family's flight from Russia in 1894, the true story of his emigration from Scotland as a teenager, and his own explanation for abandoning Judaism. But the lies he told in life were partly unraveled with his death, and all of Charles's secrets did not remain hidden forever. And as we look into Bill Gale's biography, it's clear that he was totally aware of his Jewish family. Bill's aunt Fanny lived in Los Angeles and was unabashedly Jewish as she was described. She was just, you know, self-identified as Jewish, you know, made no secret of it, and she was a frequent visitor to Bill Gale's home. And 8 years before Charles had died, he and Bill traveled to Portland to visit Charles's uncle Marcus after the suicide of Bill's older brother in Seattle. Given both of these facts, there is no way Bill Gale did not know that he had 50% Jewish blood to use his terminology. We want to, you know, fair and balanced. Um, I don't go around talking about people's Jewish blood just in (laughs) case anyone was unsure about that. That wasn't just you saying that. Okay. And to add insult to injury, what happens in January of 1950? The yearly complaint of jaundice. It just keeps happening to this guy. I think this is like a sixth time at this point. Bill traveled to the Letterman General Hospital in San Francisco while on leave and received two liver biopsies, both coming back negative. And Levitas's statement Bill's medical condition is truly something to behold. I think this is really this just cuts to the matter. Quote. Based on his consistent medical evidence, it is almost impossible to conclude that Gale suffered from hepatitis. (laughs) I mean, if anyone's liver has been poked and prodded more than William Potter Gale's, I would love to see it, frankly. I don't think it's happened. At this point, the Army Medical Board seems to finally catch wind of all this and realize, hey, you know, this guy's been complaining of jaundice and liver problems for like literally years and years and years. And literally every no test has ever showed he has any liver problems. And so they dragged him in for questioning, leading to this conversation. Colonel, 
How are you able to do any duty at all during the past three years with all this hospitalization and sickness? They pressed him. I have been trying, Gail answered weakly. Pretty hard? Yes, sir. I made it in Japan because General Eastwood uh, was more or less sympathetic and kept me on duty by letting me take it easy when I got sick. Whoa. Gail confessed. <laughs> That's nice of him. After 12 cumulative years of Army service, Lieutenant Colonel William Potter Gale was pronounced permanently unfit for military service and classified as disabled due to hepatitis, despite repeated <laughs> medical tests to the contrary. Gale never disclosed the real reason for his forced retirement, and he lied when he said he'd left the Army at the rank of full colonel, a claim he repeated incessantly until his death in 1988. So I know at this point you're all getting sick of this. Where are the where is the Jew hatred? We're moving where, on well, to the to the to the episode that had to be drained to minimum anti-Semitism, and yet it's the whole podcast. <laughs> For every sentence I'm about to utter, there's 20 more sentences in the book. Let's just put it that way. I'm giving you one twentieth. I'm giving you five percent of the anti-Semitism. This is just part one of the series. I'm just like, come on, I'm just trying to get to the posse commentators. It's like, no, anti-Semitism, anti-Semitism, anti-Semitism. <laughs> like, well, I mean, clearly, I mean, and in all seriousness, this is who this guy is. All those goofy sovereign citizen videos that you watch on YouTube might seem far removed from all this stuff, but you really got to understand all this to understand the ideological underpinning. So, yeah, we got to get into how William Potter Gale, huge piece of shit. <laughs> Anyway, <laughs> right after his discharge for having hepatitis when he didn't, <laughs> Bill Gale became more actively involved in politics, chairing the right wing Constitution Party. They talked about the usual stuff of the day, you know, like how Jews and communists were running Hollywood, you know, typical cocktail party fair. But it wasn't until 1953 that Bill Gale was converted to Christian identity by fellow piece of shit, <laughs> San Jacinto Capt, who introduced him to identity minister Wesley Swift, who motivated Gale to found an identity ministry of his own. Ah, identity In, politics. Disgusting. Sick of it. Again, we don't... Christian identity needs its own series. So the very short summary is that Christian identity teaches that Anglo-Saxons are the real Israelites. So-called Jews are really the sons of Cain and literally born from Eve fucking Satan and, <laughs> and black people. There's a, again, I saw a lot of things that we have to talk about at a later time. And to cap all this off, black people are not the descendants of Adam and thus they're not really human. Oh, oh wow. Uh, they are quote unquote mud people. <laughs> wow. Really gross to even say. Wow. So this guy, Wesley Swift, and yet another piece of shit, Reverend Gerald L. K. Smith, fanned the flames of anti-Semitic and anti-communist witch hunts in Hollywood a decade before McCarthy was anywhere on the scene. In short, Swift and Smith planted and nurtured the seeds of a radical right-wing belief system that fueled the anti-communist, anti-Semitic hysteria that engulfed Hollywood and profoundly influenced Bill Gale. They taught their followers to keep the faith, but also always to keep a gun handy. Oh, okay. you know, what my favorite faith based gun is it's an aim 15 rifle. <laughs> oh, <laughs> automatic anyway. revelation 15 at this point. So I'm going to kind of break a rule a little bit. So 
I know I said we're not going to really dig too much into the Christian identity parts of Gail's story. Uh, we're only digging in a little bit, again, giving you like 5% to just fill in his biography before we can go into the, just the really nutty legal stuff. But I simply cannot help myself and add some <laughs> details about Wesley Swift from Levitas's book because, I mean, it is juicy. So let's get into a few things about Wesley Swift here. Before becoming enamored with Christian identity, Swift was in the Ku Klux Klan and served as a shooting instructor, which maybe was not such a good idea for him. Quote, his enthusiasm did not match his aptitude for safety, however, and he once shot himself in the hand with his 357 Magnum revolver while showing it off to friends. Hey, 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 maybe he was going for a self stigmata. We don't know. Self, maybe. Yeah, I don't. I, you know. The Lord, or excuse me, I apologize. God works in mysterious yeah. ways. Oh, That's just one way to give yourself stigmata is to shoot yourself in the hands. Aside from Christian identity, Swift was involved in yet another, none dare call it ordinary, worthy subject matter, pyramidology. <laughs> Quote, the pseudoscience of pyramidology used mathematical calculations to correlate measurements of the Egyptian pyramids with biblical texts and prophecies. Swift told followers that the pyramids had been constructed by Aryan descendants of Adam. Uh, of and course. so it's like face on Mars plus the Ben Carson pyramids as grain silos theory, like in one. It's pretty, it's beautiful. <laughs> and, you know, you just look at the hieroglyphics and the paintings on the walls of pyramids and, you know, the Egyptians painted themselves as super white, blonde, blue, like blue eyed <laughs> So this is clearly true. Yeah, uh, clearly true. That's exactly what you see if you look at them. And if you don't see it, it's because you're Jewish. Oh, <laughs> believers in pyramidology in Swift's day even got a cute nickname from the critics. Pyramidiots. Right. <laughs> so that's that's wonderful. Let's bring that back. Hashtag. And lastly, in our diversion on Wesley Swift, his articles and speeches in the 40s were, of course, filled with all sorts of heartwarming gems like these. Here's the first one. The motion picture heroes and heroines are not only dope fiends and sex perverts, but are conscious agents of the Soviet <laughs> Union. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Humphrey Bogart, you know, perfect description. 100%. And here is uh, the second one. War refugees, this is anti-Semitic code for Jewish survivors of Nazi-occupied Europe, must be deported. If such a move were enforced in Hollywood, you'd see names on theater marquees that you could read. Oh, my God. <laughs> Getting back to our friend, Bill Gale, while Hollywood was certainly the tool of Jews and commies, and you know, everyone knows mm -hmm. that there were bigger problems that Bill Gale had to deal with, specifically desegregation, real big problem. <laughs> Thankfully, anti-Semitism and racism worked beautifully together, allowing racists to explain away the apparent intellectual and moral power of African-American activists as really the puppet work of Jews in the shadows. Oh, nice. of course. It, Beautiful, exactly. Course. And Bill Gale also held this view, but he had to give it this kind of weirdo Christian identity twist saying this, the Yehudi Jews and their agents stirred up the Enosh or blacks and demanded that they be put in the same schools with Adam's young children in the Southern States. In this manner, the Enosh blacks could be used to eventually destroy the Holy seed. No, it's all coming together. It makes yeah, did you get sense. that? You get that? <laughs> yeah. Clear as a black. Saturn, I, like this, I like this idea, too. Like, hey, see all these black people coming out and protesting. See those signs? They didn't 
they didn't write on those signs. The mm-hmm. Jews did it. No, they yeah, the did Jews, it. It's like they wrote the signs. Racism. They built the signs. They stuck the 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 cardboard to the stick. They organized it all. It's, right. That is definitely what happened. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's pretty amazing. 100%. Pretty amazing. Martin Luther King was just being telepathically controlled later on <laughs> by the Jews. Yes. Yes, okay. that is so Forrest is being tongue in cheek. But yeah, that's actually what they think. Pretty amazing. Pretty, pretty <laughs> I just amazing. want to clear that up. But desegregation and especially the use of the army in Little Rock, Arkansas, to allow black students to attend Central High School. These were pivotal. This was a pivotal moment in what you could call Bill Gale's development. <laughs> Quote. The use of federal military force in Little Rock also triggered Bill Gale's first thoughts about the Posse Cabotatus and started a process that was to establish him as one of the foremost influences within the radical right. So, again, there's lots of little details that really helped send Bill Gale down the goofy, hardcore right wing legalistic approach. One of them was that he was so mad about black students going to high school. That was that was the one of the things that really sent him off was black kids in high school. Really, truly a thought leader. Amongst other things, this incident pushed Gale to run for California governor as a Constitution <laughs> Party candidate. And I'll let Levitas's words explain just how crucial this was to Gale's path forward. Quote, As part of his campaign for governor, Gale announced the filing of a criminal indictment against Eisenhower for the flagrantly illegal action of invading and occupying the sovereign state of Arkansas. (laughs) Gale's indictment pronounced Eisenhower guilty of high crimes and misdemeanors and demanded the immediate arrest and trial of the president for violating the 1878 Posse Commentatus Act, which barred civilian authorities from using the U.S. Army to enforce domestic laws. It was Gale's first recorded mention of the term in right-wing circles and predated his establishment of the Posse Comitatus as a right-wing group by nearly 15 years. In tone as well as substance, his indictment of the president contained the same mixture of vigilante action and twisted legalisms that would become the hallmark of the Posse. So clearly a major development. This is really the spark that transformed Bill Gale from a boring old anti-Semite into a weird right-wing legalistic (laughs) anti-Semite. And in a later episode, we're going to dive more deeply when we get to the Posse Comitatus themselves, we're going to dive more deeply into the Posse Comitatus Act, uh, which basically says that under most circumstances, the armed forces, the federal army can't be used in a police capacity, basically, again, giving a very short summary here, but it does explicitly say, and this is all you really need to know for right now, is that the military can be called if doing so is authorized by the Constitution or an act of Congress. So the 1878 Posse Comitatus Act, combined with the Insurrection Act of 1807, explicitly allows the president to use military force to thwart insurrection. So it was 100% along the lines of the 1878 Posse Commentatus Act. But that's just nitpicking. And I apologize once again for dabbling in that kind of nonsense. You and your (laughs) facts. Nitpicknology. But we don't want to get, we don't want to get sidelined because, you know, Bill Gale had a very extensive platform. You know, he had all sorts of good ideas. 
about what to do as president, including the following. He demanded states' rights. Mm. He demanded the abolishment of the, quote, Karl Marx-inspired socialist income tax. He wanted to impeach Eisenhower and the entire Supreme Court. I didn't know that was a thing, but that's what he wanted. He wanted to withdraw from the UN and all foreign aid and use only gold and silver to pay debts. So Ron Wait, Paul, this, yeah, Ron Paul. <laughs> the original Ron Paul. Also, um, there was this other kind of minor thing is that the Zionists, the quote Zionists became, quote, corrupted by marrying, quote, Babylonians, you know, to oh, the platform Ronald. plank stuff. I'm, I'm sure we all. Move yeah, on. we all get that. Did uh, Lyndon LaRouge write the platform for that? <laughs> yeah, I, but see, that's the thing, though, is because Bill Gale loves an Anglo-Saxon. Mm. You know, he thinks he is a true Anglo-Saxon. Mm. Uh, so there's a little bit of conflict here. I'm not sure how they would hash that out, but I really hope they could have. So with a platform like this, Gale must have just crushed the governor's election in California. Sadly, he didn't. The Constitution Party failed to get the 50,000 signatures necessary to put his name on the ballot. So he resigned the party and ran as a write-in candidate, scoring 1,073 votes. So wow. who are these not, people? Not the best showing. Loser. Now, all this is going on. This is pretty extreme behavior. I think we can say this. It is unusual, unorthodox, and downright unsettling, all of this. What do Bill Gale's like, family and relatives have to say about all this. Hmm. Where are they in the mix of all this? Well, at first, when Gail announced he was running for governor, they thought it was all great. <laughs> his daughter, Kathy, thought it was, quote, good, clean fun. Oh, <laughs> and his wife, Josephine, was deluded enough to indulge in fantasies of being first lady of California. Sadly, <laughs> you need more than 1,073 votes <laughs> to get there. But after his defeat at the polls, he temporarily shunned politics and got more obsessed with being a racist and an anti-Semitic Christian identitarian. He got, you know, that became his like hobby even more so than it was before. And again, this is why I'm still skimming the surface, but literally the core of his being is being an anti-Semite. So it's like if you skin an apple and just talk about the skin, the, it's still apple skin. And so I have to talk about him being anti-Semitic. <laughs> Bill Gale even claimed to be an ordained minister in the Episcopal Church, which frankly doesn't make any sense because he didn't like the Episcopal Church. You know, he was a Christian identity person. And whether or not this is nonsense, his wife, Josephine, felt it necessary to clear all this up for daughter Kathy saying, quote, he thinks he's an ordained minister, but it's a lie. He got his ministry through the mail. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, we talked about diploma mills. This is the ministry mill. Ministry mill. I mean, I feel there's nothing wrong with that. I don't see why no. he's lying just because he got it through the mail. I became an ordained minister of the Universal Life Church and signed wedding documents via email. So, frankly, I'm a little insulted. He was, however, more successful at persuading his sister, Ruth, that this wasn't all just totally dumb and nonsensical. And she reportedly could not sleep after he gave her a copy of the Protocols of the Learned Elders of Zion. And if a family member gave me that, you know, I don't think I could sleep either. So I can kind of understand. But I think Ruth couldn't sleep for a slightly different reason. And the reason was that she thought the whole thing was true. I imagine most of our listeners know the Protocols of the Learned Elders of Zion was a late 19th century, early 20th century. I can't remember exactly the date. 
forgery, it was basically the meeting notes of the Jewish one world government is basically <laughs> what it was purported to be, because that is just how dastardly the Alliance of International Jewry is. They write down all their dastardly plants. <laughs> Fully endorsed and disseminated by the Russian Orthodox Church, oh, which we can all love. Great. Great people. Thanks. <laughs> yeah. They did a great job at getting the word out. <sighs> Finally. So, okay. So obviously that's all true. And this is how Ruth explained her defense of Bill Gale to her niece. Quote, they say he preaches hate. You bet he does. Hate the devil. And so did Christ. He does everything for Christ and anyone that don't like it can lump it. I have not found him wrong in anything he has told me since 1956. <laughs> anything. <laughs> he is a prophet or a saint. Or those people in the Mideast are not Israel. They are Yehudin or offspring of Cain. Cain was of the evil one. Satan. Wow. Not brainwashed. No. This is, uh, is this from the Ingram angle? that I saw that last night. Uh, I think it might be. I think it might be. And, uh... Thankfully for all of us and for, frankly, the rest of humanity, the rest of Gail's family was not nearly as receptive, and we're going to explain why he wasn't the best communicator. His oldest daughter, Jerry, announced that she, uh, she planned on moving to New York to pursue a singing career. In response, Gail said he would disown her if she moved to, quote, Jew York, as he lovingly called it. He also, quote, warned her to be on the lookout for Satan's children bearing horns and tails. And so when she disembarked from her cross-country bus trip, the 17-year-old Californian surveyed the crowds warily for hidden appendages. <laughs> his second daughter, Kathy, also rejected his Christian identity views and had perhaps an even more intense experience than Jerry. Quote, One day, Kathy invited a Jewish friend to the house. His face contorted in disgust. Gail confronted the teenager and accused him of being a false Jew. I can smell a Jew, Gail growled at the startled visitor. You're not Jewish. You think you are, but you're nothing but a proselyte Jew. A proselyte Jew is worse than a Jew. You're not Jewish because I can smell a Jew when they come in the door. Whoa. Kathy was mortified. Daddy, I can't believe you. How dare you, she declared, her jaw dropping. <laughs> That's when I realized that my father had gone off the deep end and I decided not to ever bring anybody else over to the house. She recalled yeah, good move. I would hope that's when you uh, he's gone off the deep end. I am. I mean, let's be honest. He probably went off the deep end a little bit before this incident. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe she should reevaluate her definition of the deep end. I feel for her. The deep end has to be the Mariana's trench. And I feel mm. that there are less deep areas that are still the deep end. Perhaps. Just by the way, Kathy recalls that Bill Gale emphatically stated that he never started any of these conversations over race and religion. Uh, and to that, I'm just going to have to say, do your own research. You're going to have to answer <laughs> that one for yourself. Who knows? <laughs> Who knows? But what about Bill's Jewish family? You know, how on earth could his anti-Semitism cope with his being half Jewish? Let's just say that Bill Gale and Sister Ruth had to get pretty creative to explain that one. This is really where the, they put their thinking hats on to get clear about all this. Oh, okay. Here we go. About their five Jewish uncles, they claimed that they married into Judaism. They were not themselves Jewish. They just all married Jewish wives. Mm, okay. And Fanny, who was Charles Gale's sister, 
required a bit of a more elaborate explanation. Quote, when Fanny came over here, she started that Jewish business because she went to New York, got mixed up with them and became brainwashed. Oh, that's the direction of the brainwashing here. Yeah, that's that's (laughs) who was brainwashed. (laughs) Right. Clearly not Jewish. And we're going to end today's episode on William Potter Gale kind of coming up to the 60s. Now, we're going to end it on this note. All of this nonsense that we're talking about must be understood against the backdrop of the Christian identity belief that Bill Gale was really an Israelite and the so-called Jews were not. In short, as Levitas puts it, quote, Bill Gale was a Jewish anti-Semite who spent a lifetime trying to convince other anti-Semites that they too were Jews. (laughs) And with that is the end of our first episode on Sovereign Citizens. And we are done! Thank you for listening to this episode of None Dare Call It Ordinary. If you would also like to hear our weekly bonus episodes, just become a $5 a month patron over at patreon.com slash none dare call it ordinary. That is also where you'll find any blog posts, pictures, and news updates to go along with our regular series. And you don't even have to be a patron to get access to all that fun stuff. You can also reach us by email at nondarecallitordinary at gmail.com. Lastly, we ask for you to please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever your podcasts are served.